straight, but I always make the same mistakes. Yeah, always make the same mistakes, cause I'm bad in love. You're in Shannon. On this uh, Wednesday, it's February 7th, a couple things that we're keeping our eyes on. The Senate has apparently come to a deal on a two-year budget plan, but it does not include anything for uh, a DACA agreement. And Nancy Pelosi says no deal will be done unless it includes DACA. So she could be in the way of that. The White House has already said they do like this plan. It would fund the government at least through uh, part of March uh, and get things back on track. So this is... An attempt to avoid a government shutdown late tomorrow. Also, this interview that Quincy Jones gave to Vulture. What a treat. He rolls on a lot of celebrities. He talks about the Kennedy assassination, about Michael Jackson's He knows stealing. who killed Kennedy. Well, he has a theory that has long been publicized about Sam Giancana right. and Frank Sinatra and how they, they bought Kennedy the White House, or the, at least the path to the White House, and then the Kennedys turned on... Uh, turned on him once they got in the white house that's been long i think the theory the the theme of the whole interview is he knows too much he that's those are his words yes i know too much man Yeah, the clintons are in there anyway it's a treat we'll uh (laughs) we'll take you into the deep details when we uh when we uh coming up after the bottom of the hour but first uh a story that is not a treat John Lewin is a district attorney in the L.A. County D.A.'s office. He has spent his career putting away the worst of the worst. And when you put away the worst of the worst, number one, there shouldn't be a fear that they're going to get out, right? And number two, that if there is a chance that they get out, the parole board will be looking out for us, the innocent people who live in this state. Unfortunately, in California, that's not the way things always go. A guy named William Terry Bradford uh, was convicted several years ago, 17 years ago now, of killing his wife. The The murder itself took place in 1988, uh, but he wasn't put on trial officially until 2000, uh, or rearrested in 2001 and charged with first-degree murder. And that's when John Lewin began to prepare for trial, the first cold case of your career. That's right? When I took to trial. So, um this you win. I mean, you win the case on behalf of the people of the state of California. The guy gets 26 years to life in prison. Here we find ourselves only 17 years later, and the parole board has recommended him for parole, despite the fact that you said that this guy had made threats to kill you, despite the fact that his own daughter had asked the parole board not to let this guy out. Well, it's it's even worse than that, and and I think it's important. I want to thank you both for having me here today. This is a really important issue that I think people need to understand what's going on. Um, what happened is the murder itself. You had a fifty-five-year-old engineer, very highly thought of, um, upper middle class, and he was in a bad divorce with his wife. And when he couldn't starve her into an agreement that he wanted, she ended up going to court and ended up getting a judgment that included back child support and alimony. They had a 16-year-old still at home and three other kids that were that were adults. And he had to pay uh, that $40,000 in back alimony and child support. He had to pay it $150 a month. And when the clause in the deal was that if he became 60 days late on the $150, she could, she could get all $40,000 at once. So he became late and he exchanges letters back and forth very arrogant, very I told you how this was going to be, kind of a classic uh, domestic abuser. And um, his wife, who clearly was 
afraid of him, um, did not confront him directly in the letters. But what she did was she and her lawyer went. They had to sell the house as part of the agreement. And the day before her murder, uh, he finds out the escrow company calls and they say, hey, we have a check for you. Uh, It's $40,000 less than you think you're getting because your wife and her lawyer have garnished your money. So the next day he doesn't show up for work, which is so unusual. He's such an incredible engineer there that his boss literally goes over to the house because he thinks he's dead. Finds him there. He's upset, won't talk about it. And that night, um, in a very nice area of Torrance, um, his wife is executed. She's shot five times, including uh, once in the back of the neck when she was probably trying to crawl away, um, twice after she was not moving. And then we know that he goes to Redondo Beach Pier, and he ends up sleeping in his car for two days. So you might be thinking, well, why is he going to the pier? Well, it turns out that his wife's divorce lawyer has his office on the pier, and he slept in the car for two days waiting for him. And wow, no doubt in my mind, this was going to be a double murder and a, su- and a suicide probably because he's a bright guy. He's not going to get away with both of these. So the police end up responding to the house. Um, this is another uh, class move on his part. Um, knowing that she lives with her daughter, their daughter, and their 16-year-old son, they, of course, get to find their mother's uh, executed body in the house. And immediately... Um, immediately they say, you know what, um, it's got to be my dad. That was a telling line. In, the daughter was asked uh, by detectives, does your father own a gun? And, and that she said at that moment. She remembered everything. She yeah. remembered all the hatred that her dad would spew at her mother for her whole lifetime. How did this case become a cold case? How how did they not have enough evidence to, to go forward with this? Or, or they did... No charges were filed. He was arrested, but no charges filed. Well, so what happened was this was a circumstantial case. They did a search warrant originally on his house before they even find him. He's at the pier. They don't have any idea where he is. And and by the way, um, this is not a guy who's going to go to the beach to be meditating, um, sleeping in his car. He, he lived about three miles from the beach. So uh, clearly he was on a mission to go there. When they search the house, they find a box, an empty box for a uh, three fifty seven Magnum which it turns out will be consistent with the weapon that was used to, uh, to kill his wife. Um, they don't find the gun. Uh, he eventually allegedly finds out about the murder on Sunday morning. Murder happens on Friday when he talks to his son. And um, at that point in time, he goes back home and he sees the uh, search warrant, and goes in to talk to the police, and he gives a statement. And in that statement, he basically says that, you know, he had gone over to the house earlier that day to confront his wife. He said that he felt, and this is really a key, and this is how these guys work. The the line, the word that he used, I will never forget was, I felt betrayed. Um, you know, who is she to come and take my money? I will tell her how much she should get. Um, we went to a lawyer for both of us together, and he said this was a fair deal. And so the bitterness about his wife is just um, off the charts. Um, That was what they had. It was a very circumstantial case. And, you know, unfortunately, 20, 30 years ago, uh, we weren't prosecuting circumstantial cases the way that that we do today. Um, It's an area for me. I've spent my career. That's what I do are these old circumstantial cases, primarily spousal murders. That's interesting to me. Why is that? Why didn't they prosecute circumstantial cases? Oh, oh my gosh, we need a whole hour. Here's what I can tell you briefly. It kind of goes back to um, 
we can blame Perry Mason for this. So if you go back to Perry Mason, he would always get Smoking up. Smoking gun, yeah. Yeah, he would always get up and he would say, this case is nothing but circumstantial evidence. And he kind of spit when he said it like it was just the lowest, the worst, worst thing, kind. Yeah. And, and in actuality, um, you can have a case with an, with an identification. Someone says, you know what, that's the guy that I saw do it. They can be mistaken. A lot of time they are. A lot of times <laughs> they are. Circumstantial evidence, it's never mistaken. The issue is... What do those facts mean? But when you have these circumstances, so in this case, you got a woman living in a very nice area. She's a mother of four. She's very low risk. Who else but the husband? Yeah, and then and then <laughs> coincidentally, oh, uh, he got hit with forty grand right, yesterday. Right. He's sleeping in his car at the beach, and his gun, which is consistent with the murder weapon, is missing. That's nuts to me. So that was my case. So we got it filed. Um, it was a very difficult case for for us because we didn't have anything new. When you don't have anything new, the defense can argue that they've been prejudiced. One of the kind of ironic things about what I do is that these guys will run around for years and years when they shouldn't. Then when you charge them, they will literally file a motion saying, it's not fair that you're charging me now. You should have charged me 30 years ago, and I've been prejudiced. I mean, it's really kind of the height of, are you kidding me? Um Almost had an expletive there that I... Uh, That's all right. That's all right. That's why Blake's Um, on it. Hey, we got to take a quick break here. Uh, We'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about this monster because uh, John Lewin here, deputy DA for LA County DA's office, was able to put this guy away finally, years after the murder went cold. And what he said in prison about John and his family, what he would do to them when he gets out, will blow your mind. Gary and Shannon will continue... If you close your eyes, Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk, talking about a murder from 1988. This murderer, William Bradford, shot his wife in cold blood over money. He had two kids at the time, 16, 21 years old, up for parole recently. His daughter, there testified before the parole board and said, I am terrified of my father. John Lewin, DA for LA County DA's office, also testified at the parole board at the hearing because when this guy was inside, when he was in prison, he told a fellow inmate about how he couldn't wait to get out, couldn't wait to get paroled to kill John Lewin, the DA who prosecuted his case. But first, he'd kill John Lewin's wife and kids and make him watch it all. And the parole board found that it was a good idea to rubber stamp this guy getting out. How the hell does that happen? John's with us today uh, for a little bit about what you can do now, what what your recourse is, if there is any recourse, and what the rationale was behind the parole board's decision. So this is what happened. Um, And just backing up one step, when he was sent to state prison, Uh, after he was convicted in 2002, I was contacted by the Department of Corrections. You know, it's a call you don't want to get. Sure. Um, Hey, listen, we want to advise you, uh, a guy you prosecuted is um, uh, is plotting to murder you and your family. So, you know, that certainly gets your attention. And um, they had an informant who was his cellmate. And I said, is he credible? And they said, yeah, he's credible. I said, can I talk to him? So I spoke to him. For a long period of time, he wasn't asking for anything. He didn't want any any help with anything. Um, and I'd asked him, why are you coming forward? And he had said, well, um, 
Bradford had confessed to him, and he said he just he hated the guy. He couldn't believe that he could have executed, you know, his uh, the mother of his four children. He said also, um, he's been showing me. Uh, he was a satellite engineer. He's been making diagrams and showing me top secret satellite uh, information. So they swept the cell and they corroborated that. They actually found uh, the information. So when I'm talking to the to the informant, I said, "Hey, listen, I'd like to polygraph you." No problem. I'd be more than happy. So he came down, told me the story, and we polygraphed him, and he passed. And the story was this: basically, Bradford, in essence, um, and this is the kind of person he is. He never told the guy, listen, I didn't kill my wife. I'm wrongfully convicted. What he said was, is that, quote, well, he hated me. Um, and uh, he said that I had stuck my nose into things where it didn't belong, <laughs> that um, that everything was fine until then, that his investigators and attorneys had told him that it was the thinnest murder case they'd seen. Again, not that he didn't do it, but that he shouldn't have been convicted that he was going to get out very quickly. And once he got out through appeal or motion for new trial, he was going to do some things he's always wanted to do. And then when that was done, uh, he had a to-do list, and I was at the top of the list. And then he explained what he was going to do. He wasn't just going to kill me. He was going to execute my, uh, my, my family at the time in front of me um, so that I could watch. Um, and then apparently, I guess the... The last thing that, you know, I would have felt was, oh, my God, I've let down my wife and children. Um, I've gotten them murdered, and then I would be killed. What did the parole board – you told this to the parole board. Oh, it's worse than that. Um, In advance, I sent a letter to the parole board with everything. Um, So they had the information. I also – I didn't come up there as a representative of the DA's office. I came up there because the family wanted me there, so I was a representative of the family and was able to speak. And I will tell you that the thing that gets me the most is that it was very clear that before we walked in there that the commissioner had already made up his mind, um, and he didn't even give us the respect to pretend that he was going to listen to what we had to say. And, and this is this is what he said. We came up there, and um, they – the, he comes in, and he's going to be 85, and he says that he's what's called DD2 classified. And DD2 basically means that usually needs reminders and assistance with daily functions. And he had somebody there to help him. Um, and then he also has a hearing impairment. Um, I wear two hearing aids, and, and he, he was hearing better than I was. And, um, and he had someone there to kind of help him. And so they spend a lot of time on all of his issues, et cetera, and they start going through his life. This man remembered every elementary school he'd ever attended. He would make corrections about, you know, his degree, where it was from. His memory was far better than mine, um, except for, coincidentally, when it came to the circumstance of the murder. So originally, when he's asked about having, um, having his wife, he says she, quote, passed away, which is true. She passed away after he shot her five times. Right. Um, but as if, you know, she, my wife, she passed away. I lost her to, to cancer or something. He then, um, he then, they inquire a little more. And his question is, do you mean the lady I shot? And they say, yeah, he says, he doesn't know why he says, quote, I was not particularly mad at her, uh, (laughs) which again, he later used the term irritated. So apparently this is how he responds when he's not mad or irritated. 
I don't know how he responds when he's angry. I don't care if this guy has a hint of dementia. The parole board should not be letting out a convicted murderer who has made threats to to your family, credible threats. I mean, who knows what this guy knows, who he knows on the outside. And you know what? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take a fully functional brain to walk up to your kids and kill them. Shannon, and this is what he told. This is what the so what happens is he goes through the hearing and the factors that they're supposed to be looking at, they're looking at certain factors. They can no longer, under California law, just look at the circumstances of the crime. Because the circumstances of this crime, I've tried a lot of spousal homicides. And listen, it's horrible whenever it happens. But many times you have a decent person who on the wrong day, you know, with the, with the right circumstances, does something that they regret. They still have to be punished etc. But they're not necessarily evil people. This is a man who wasn't, they weren't having a fight. He wasn't angry. And he said, I wasn't angry. He lost. He was mad. He went in there and he executed her. So um, that's the facts of the case. The thing that they look at is they're supposed to look at future dangerousness. They're supposed to look at, um, have you uh, accepted responsibility for the crime? He had never spoken about the crime at all until this hearing. They're supposed to look at, um, have you expressed remorse? Well, when he first talked about shooting her, he didn't express remorse. Later on, he says, I feel remorseful. It's about as stiff as could be. You're supposed to look at what have they done inside? Have they programmed? You're going to love this. He's okay, in wait, hold on. We're going to stop you right there. We're going to take a break for news. We'll come back uh, more with John Lewin and the, the monster that the parole board wants to let out free. Gary and Shannon will continue. Just Gary and Shannon, we are talking with John Lewin from the L.A. County DA's office. It was 17 years ago that William Bradford was convicted of shooting and killing his wife, the mother of his four kids. And just last week, William Bradford was granted parole at a hearing despite objections, not just from John Lewin, but also from from his own daughter. Uh, who said that this guy should not get out of prison. The parole board says, eh, we'll give him a shot. Despite the fact that he had told his cellmate at one point that he wanted to have uh, John Lewin and his family killed. Where does this guy go if, if he were to get out? Go in some sort of uh, assisted living home or something like that? Well, so um, uh, strange, interesting you brought that up. So one of the factors they look at is what are his plans? So they asked him about his plans. He didn't have any. So he says, you know what? I want to I wanna live with my sister. And he gives the sister's name. And the defense attorney says they've been unable to speak to her. Um, he had said that this sister had all of his money, and he has, he says, millions of dollars. So over the lunch break, the defense attorney reaches the, um, the sister, comes back, and you can see the defendant looks a little agitated after lunch. And she addresses the board and she says, um, yes, I was able to get a hold of his sister. Um, no, it's not going to work out for him to stay there. Oh, and also, it turns out that probably he doesn't, there's no money left. So if you recall, he wasn't real happy, although just irritated over the 40000 Right. So now. In the death of his wife. wife. So now the money's gone. And literally, you can't make this up. One of the commissioners asks him, are you going to kill your sister? 
And he says, no. If that's even a question, you don't let the guy out. What the hell? Then 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 he comes back with, um, they're asking, well, are you mad? And and I wrote it down because, again, I I thought this was great. Um, Now, remember, before he was only irritated. Right. Quote, um, after I find out, I'll decide how mad I want to be (laughs) at her. He also said at one point in time, don't get mad, Sue. So he's going to engage the legal process, which I believe he did with his wife. And when it didn't work out, right. given that he's more of a self-help kind of guy, he went and executed her. So this is the information they're uncovering during the hearing. So I'm listening to this thing going, um, oh, and I, I didn't get into his activities in prison. So he's been there since 2002. And they look at your programming. What have you done? So he's basically done no programs until 2017. And just the names of these, you can't make this up. He's gone a couple of times to the, quote, cage your rage group. So he's in the process of cage, of caging made up. his rage. Um, he says that um, they're in prison and there's a program called cage your rage. You know what that's called? Prison. <laughs> It's a cage. So your rage. He's also he's also in a in another group which is called House of Healing. Stop it. Uh, you can't make this up. And again, he's he is learning to forgive himself for what he's done. Um, I'm glad he's forgiven himself. Right. Uh, his his children have not, and society shouldn't. But he also says that he's not there yet. He, he's still trying to figure out uh, what's going on. He didn't offer any explanation for really why he killed his wife. Guys, there's something going on here. There's something going on with the with the parole board. Uh, Mike Ramos in San Bernardino County just had a press conference this week saying that the California Board of Parole hearings paroled six convicted murderers from San Bernardino County in the last month. What's going on? I don't this is a trend, apparently. The California Parole Board is letting out convicted murderers who threaten lives when when they're in prison, more lives. What's going on? Well, Shannon, you have to be, in the words of the parole commissioner, when he announced his decision, what he told me was, is, quote, there is no nexus between his threats to you and his future dangerousness. And I'm thinking, and this is what he said, that was 15 years ago. Well, he's been in prison. Right. They just, caught so they caught him the last years time. Years is not that well, long. Well, they caught him the last time. So, as if and he talks, he's got a clean disciplinary record in prison. It's as if they expected that he would be gang banging, maybe taking over the cigarette and drug trade. Um, he's a guy who stews and plots and calculates, and then he acts. I'm sure you'd rather him be taking over the drug trade than. Threatening your kids' lives. Uh, I, gotta, I, I I think that I think that would that would certainly be an improvement. We got to take a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk to you about what we can do to stop this. All right, Gary and Shannon, we'll continue. I'm going back to my roots. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM six forty. Talking to L.A. County D.A., Deputy D.A., John Lewin, uh, about a guy he's trying to keep locked up, uh, a guy who killed his wife in cold blood. And then when he was convicted and put away, he threatened John Lewin's family as well as John himself. The parole board has decided to let this guy out. And it looks like it's up to one guy to keep him inside. 
Yeah, so what's going to happen now is there's a 120-day period that started last week where the board themselves can review the grant of parole. One of the things that was unusual is this was his first time being eligible. Very unusual for murderers to be paroled their first time, and usually they have this incredible story of, you know, all the efforts that have happened, maybe their case, it was they were a battered woman or, you know, they grew up in a horrific environment. This guy, first time out for parole, hasn't admitted anything. First time he admits to it is during the hearing and then pretends he doesn't know who he shot. So it, it goes to the parole board. They have 120 days. If they do not overturn the decision, and when the transcript comes out, I, I think it's um, it was as if when the questions were being asked, um, none of them were helpful to the to the defendant, but the board didn't care. He had clearly made up his mind, the commissioner, that the guy has uh, some dementia and he's not a threat and I'm going to let him out. So hopefully when they review it, they will have the, the sense to um, undo the, this really just inappropriate and dangerous decision. But if not, then it goes to the governor who, um, from everything I've been told, has been very good in the past about writing these grants of parole to these dangerous people, especially when they have threatened or, or harmed, you know, uh, law enforcement officers or, or people in the uh, criminal justice system. How do you, how do you change this at all? I mean, how do, how, I mean, we, we have this incredible story about the parole board having granted this guy parole that still does have some, some hoops to go through before he ever sees the outside of the prison but how do you change this? What can you do to get out in front of it? Or what can we do to get out in front of it? Well, I think the only way you do it is, you know, you turn the lights on. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm talking to as many people as I can. And that's why I'm so thankful for this opportunity today. Because I think that when people hear it, uh, they're just shocked. Um, they're shocked that he could brutally murder his wife like this and get out so early. They're shocked that while he's in prison at 70 years old, he can be threatening to kill a prosecutor and his family. They're shocked that he could do no programming in prison at all, that he could not admit what he's done until the hearing, that he has no plans for parole and, and, and still have a grant. So I'm appearing, talking to everyone I can, and, and hopefully it's going to shine enough light on it that they're going to be embarrassed and that they're going to going to rethink this. Um, it's interesting that the parole board uh, uses age to assess whether somebody should be granted parole. And it seems a little bit arcane that they're giving preference to convicts who are over the age of 60. 60 is not old anymore. Because this guy wasn't even put in jail until he was, how old was he when he went in? 70? He, he, he was 70. What's interesting about, about that point, Shannon, is that when you look at the statistics, you know, if you're going to talk about, for instance, um, you know, gang members, you don't have a lot of 60 and 70-year-old gang members. But the difference is, is when you have somebody who's brutally murdered his wife at age 55 because he's a bitter, horrible man and who is still expressing that bitterness, trying to have people murdered, et cetera, I don't think that he changed in prison. The one or two um, cage or rage meetings that he went to last year, I don't think that's really turned him around. So I think that they're looking at general statistics and they've thrown away common sense because you can ask a 10-year-old. Um, you know, I talked to my kids about what happened. Uh, my kids knew in advance that I was going to this hearing and they said, is he going to get paroled? I said, there's no chance this guy's going to get paroled. Mm. Absolutely not. Uh, now how are they doing? What? Are you- well, it's, you know, it's, I think for my wife and my kids, 
they're holding on to the idea that he can't be released until February of next year. And, um, you know, uh, the DA, my boss, Jackie Lacey, has been very supportive. Um, I know that Good. she'll be contacting the governor. Our chief of our Bureau of Investigations, John New, has been incredible, you know, telling me what can we do. You know, we're going to make sure you're okay. Because uh, obviously our system doesn't work if police officers and prosecutors or defense attorneys who are doing their job um, can be threatened. You know, I should add um, during this hearing, at no point did anybody ever contest that he made those threats. And then later, um, the defense attorney at the hearing was interviewed and basically said that um, no one would ever take these threats seriously. It's his word against somebody else. This is absurd. And literally said she's going to file a complaint because I was present at the hearing and that I shouldn't have been there. So my question would be, the parole board shouldn't hear that this man is threatening my family. I guess maybe what should happen is after he gets out and he kills my son or my daughter or my wife, maybe then... Then we bring it up. Uh, then I'm allowed to come right. forward and, and say something. It's incredible. And this is not something that we are going to let go. Tomorrow I want to get, dig into the uh, per, uh, parole board. Maybe talk to Mike Ramos because he's pissed off about this too. And, yeah. and just in San Bernardino, uh, San Bernardino County, six convicted murderers let out in one month. Something going on with that parole board. John Lewin, thank you for uh, thank you for coming in today. Uh, like Shannon said, this is not something we're going to drop anytime soon. If you have any developments, let us know, and we'll let other people know too. I certainly will. Thank you again for for devoting so much time Absolutely. to this. It's really really something very personally important to me that just goes past you know my normal work. So thank you. Absolutely. All right. We'll come back. We're going to do all of our trending stories when we come back. Also, Swamp Watch at the bottom of next hour, getting into what is a long-term budget deal that's been worked out. Gary and Shannon will continue after this.